Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. As 2021 comes to a close and 2022 begins, we at A Better Peace um, would like to take some time to reflect on what's happened and what may happen in the future. And this is a chance for the editors of A Better Peace to discuss these sorts of things to help to set the stage for conversations that are likely to interest us in the weeks and months to come. And so for that reason, I am delighted to welcome today to A Better Peace, the editor-in-chief of the War Room, Dr. Jacqueline Witt. Dr. Jackie Witt has a long list of credentials. She is uh, a professor of strategy, has been a professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College in the Department of National Security and Strategy. She is currently with the State Department with a long uh, job description that I will ask her to repeat to me because I get a kick out of hearing her describe it. But I'm especially delighted that Dr. Witt, who is a, an expert not only in the history of strategy, but also in war and society and the military and society, can talk to us today about questions of where we have been, where we are going, how we should imagine the role of the United States in the world and the role of the United States military in American policy going forward. So welcome to A Better Peace again, Dr. Jacqueline Witt. Thank you. It's so good to be back in the studio with you. So, uh, Dr. Witt, um, so much of the last few months of 2021 have have centered around the American withdrawal from Afghanistan and what that means and what that tells us in capital letters about the future of uh, American commitments abroad, about the meaning of the Afghanistan commitment, um, and about what that means for policy going forward. Um, it's people talk about how it's tough to talk about history when it is still smoking and this history is Mm -hmm. still smoking, but it is tamped down some, how do things look right now from your perspective about what does it mean that we, the United States left Afghanistan in the fall of 2021? Yeah, it's, it brings to mind several questions and, and more questions than answers for me at this point. But I think one, one of those questions is about, the politicization of military interventions and events. Uh, We know that the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, was promised for a couple of administrations, right? We've been working on extricating the U.S. uh, from that particular engagement for a long time. We talk about timelines that were set under previous administrations and things like that. And so one of the things that was very interesting to watch, right, is the is the way in which members of different political parties, the Republican party and the democratic party in the United States talked about withdrawal, depending on who was in the white house. Um, And I think it's a, it's a really clear example where we have this intersection of domestic politics with foreign policy. And traditionally 
we thought about foreign policy as a relatively bipartisan um, thing or where, where wild swings between political parties didn't always happen. Some exceptions. Um, but we, we tended to think about foreign policy as a place where you could potentially put partisan rancor and division sort of at the, at the door and, and keep in mind, you know, the real security concerns and the, the national defense concerns um, for the United States. And I think we saw, we're seeing that, that norm erode quite, quite strongly. So that's, that's sort of one observation. A second is really about intelligence and about timelines and about what we think is going to happen in the future. I have heard no one who knows anything suggest that Afghanistan was going to be a peaceful, stable place after American withdrawal. That was um, that never seemed to be on the on the table. What seems to have taken people by surprise is the rapidity with which the Taliban took took over the country again. Right, that what caught people off guard was not that it happened but was how fast it happened. And I think that induced a couple of things. One is why were our estimates about the timeline so wrong? And that seems a reasonable question to ask and one that we should work on answering. And the second, I think it induced a real crisis in people who had served, even more so than if it had taken, you know, six months, eight months, a year for the same thing, for the backsliding to happen when it happened in a matter of days and weeks it seems very hard to ask yourself anything other than what in the world were we doing for 20 years right yeah did it make any difference right at all you know that's the uh one of one of my favorite sad historical anecdotes is that when simone bolivar died um after as he watched his dream for a for a completely independent and unified uh, South America fall apart is apparently one of his last words to his uh, officers who are around him was, we have plowed the sea. Um, so the idea yeah. that there's nothing, uh, that we've left nothing behind. And that's that's a very difficult question. And it raises complicated issues, you know, what people are told along the way, um, what people uh, what people should have expected. And this, I think, is something for us to talk about, about the military and society, is uh, how are military deployments talked about to the public while they are going on, mm-hmm. right? The tendency to engage in happy talk um, then makes it difficult when, when people, and then when things turn out really badly, if the people who really know, quote, quote, if they then shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, we kind of knew this might happen, then that raises right. the question of, well, why is it impossible to be honest about these things while they're going on? Yeah, you're left with really uncomfortable alternatives, which is that we are delusional right. or we are lying. Like right. which right. which one is it or maybe both, maybe right? Both. Like um and I think that so I think that's another another place where we saw in in really stark relief um these these questions because we have been you can look back, you know, over over 20 years and we're making progress, we're turning a corner like all of those those cliches and none of those are new. None of those are unique to Afghanistan. We can go back uh, to Vietnam. We can go back to Iraq. We can go back to many places, right? Where um, the, the language of turning a corner, making progress, 
on these massively complicated political and political and military, you know, situations is very hard to very hard to see. And the the complexities and the gray areas are tremendously difficult to communicate. And they are, um, you know, when we talk about communication with the American public, when we talk about communication uh, to to an international public, and when we talk about internal communications to U.S. military, um, you know, personnel, I think one of the things that we see too is that you have to be consistent in the 21st century information environment. You can't, you cannot tell one story to one group of people and, and expect that it stays, you know, with 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 that one group of people. The uh, the the global information environment is such that if if it's out there, you should expect that everybody's going to hear it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah. so that consistency, I think, is a is a real challenge for people right now. And consistency is difficult as well uh, when we're talking about comparing cases too. I, I was just thinking you mentioned Iraq, and uh, uh, for a different program, I interviewed somebody who was worked on Iraq and uh, uh, a former Marine Colonel who studies the Iraq Iraqi economy named Frank Gunter. And Frank said at one point in the conversation, you know, in some ways, Iraq's a success story. Um, in the sense that Iraq is more stable now than it was in 2004 or 2006 or 2007. Um, and he said that in part because he wanted to shake up the audience. But it, that whole issue of, you know, it would indeed be a, a, a bizarre paradox if, uh, you know, for, for years we were saying, right, that Iraq was the mistake and that uh, Afghanistan was the, the good war. Um, and that it turns out that Iraq turns out better than Afghanistan. But what does that say about policy? What does that say about you know when the United States should leave, how the United States should leave, um, and and the question of how do we compare? Because this something else bigger that we talked about before, and that I want to get into this conversation, is among the discussions about what does it mean that we left Afga- Afghanistan? Is what does this mean for American credibility and our the American commitments elsewhere? Um, is it is it too easy to just say it doesn't have to mean anything because every place else in the world is not Afghanistan? Well, this is this is one of my I, I love this conversation, <laughs> and this is a place where we're both historians. We should we should say that up front. True. And so, um, this conversation about credibility, reputation, and resolve is one that happens largely outside of the discipline that Ron and I are are members of. Which is to say, this is a really robust debate within international relations. And it's fascinating. Uh, and I, I learn a lot from, I learn a lot from Twitter and I learn a lot from uh, reading. Uh, that's Paul a great, Post's that's a great Twitter quote for this conversation, but I learn um, a lot from Twitter. I, I, man, do I, and there's all sorts of good cat stuff on Twitter. So, <laughs> you know, balance in all things. Um, but this conversation, because I think we have a, we have an intuition. We like Americans, humans, whatever, there's an intuition that your reputation and your credibility matter Mm -hmm. that, um, and the, the, the logic is, goes something like this, right? Because we, we, the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, other people, other States who need American support or coalition support will be less likely to trust that American help and intervention sort of is, is good and on the way, because when things get tough, the United States is going to, is going to 
cut and run. Right. If we leave in Vietnam, it will open the door, right, for action by the Soviets. If we leave in Afghanistan, it will open the door for all of these other uh, actors with malign intent to, to take to take shape. And it turns out that the the political science literature suggests this is utter hogwash. That it that it actually doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But man, that's a really counterintuitive thing, right? And a really hard thing to explain in in plain terms because the intuition seems just so airtightly logical. Because why wouldn't reputation matter? Why wouldn't credibility matter? Um, and we have some we have some terminology things right where colloquial usage is different from academic usage and and all of that aside the um the literature is pretty clear that it probably won't matter right and you can see this too in some comments like what are you talking about that this shows a lack of resolve the united states stayed in afghanistan for 20 years that's a generation that's an you know fathers and fathers and sons and and mothers and daughters are fighting in the same you know in the same war right um People who have enlisted were not even born when the worth when the when the war started. How can in what possible universe does right. does a twenty year commitment count as a lack of resolution or a lack of result? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Twenty years doesn't count, but man, twenty one or twenty two would have made a huge. That would difference. probably do it. Yeah. Um, and I've you know I I, I wrote a piece um, I think in, in Strategy Bridge a couple a couple years ago that talked about defending a strategy of not losing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i and i i i don't know if i would write the same piece now but i think it i think it still largely holds which is in a lot of complicated and complex situations especially when you're talking about paths so far down the road right bells you can't unring and actions you can't undo sometimes the best you can hope is that today is a little better than tomorrow mm-hmm. Sometimes the best you can do is to say, here's the, you know, here's the situation. And maybe it takes pulling out of Afghanistan to figure out what the baseline case is again. Right. Um, do I imagine we, the United States, are back in Afghanistan in some form or fashion within the foreseeable future? If I, w- if I were going <laughs> to prognosticate, I'd, I'd say yes. Like, I don't think it's a place we can ignore. I don't think it's a region uh, that the United States uh, can safely just write off. Um, but there seems to be no way to tell what has to be done mm-hmm. to secure uh, the United States homeland to defend against, right. Um, sort of insurgent and, and terrorist cells without, without figuring out what the, what the base case is right. in Afghanistan. I think we're seeing it now and it's a, it's a mess. Right. No, we are. And, and the idea that, uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't uh, let's say it it doesn't denigrate what might have been accomplished over the over the last two decades to recognize that once that once the Americans were gone that things were going to be very different. But to related to this is to this larger question of as you say, you know, the literature might show that you know credibility isn't isn't really a thing, but certainly when we're talking about short and medium term political discussions and short and medium term public discussions, right? Credibility plays a huge role. And of course, this is also where going back to your point about how politics is uh, shaping 
our discussion of security policy, perhaps more than it has in the past, that for critics of the current administration, right, the idea that leaving Afghanistan is proof of some kind of larger weakness in the American defense establishment, some larger weakness uh, that, you know, have we, have we lost the ability to do strategy? Have we lost the ability to fight wars? Um, are we doing some, or is the United States military somehow doing the wrong stuff? Because if we'd been doing mm-hmm. the right stuff, we would have figured out how to win in Afghanistan. Um, and how do we relate that kind of question? So perhaps, perhaps not the credibility of the United States vis-a-vis international adversaries, but perhaps our own internal sense of the credibility of our armed forces. Um, how do we make sense of that in light of the the fact that the we were not able to, to force a military solution, a permanent military solution right. in Afghanistan? Yeah, here again, I think there's a few a few big questions that I'd like to to offer, and, and if people want to submit uh, articles or podcast pitches to uh, answer some of these questions, send them send them our way. Absolutely, um, we have we have some growing evidence that the American public's um, the military has been one of the most highly trusted institutions for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of American um, American institutions, we see some evidence of that in decline, which I think is interesting and important. And I think, again, we have to ask um, trust in the military to do what? Mm-hmm. And I think we see a couple of a couple of strains. One is maybe a decline in the the trust that the military can fight and win the nation's wars, which leads us to a question about, civilian control and and the political nature of wars and what kind of things are we asking our military to do. Um, And then the second is a, is a lack of trust in the sort of maybe the moral fiber and moral leadership of the military. As we look at failures um, in terms of sexual assault, sexual harassment, we look at suicide rates uh, within the military and veteran communities. We look at failures of, of leadership and, and character, the Fat Leonard scandal, the, um, you know, all sorts of things. We look at defense budgets um, vis-a-vis the rest of the, you know, discretionary spending of the United States. And I think people are starting to ask real questions about what is the value of the, of the institution. And those are questions because of this high level of, societal trust that the military maybe hasn't had to confront for a while. Mm. Uh, and I think there, there is, if we talk about where we were in 2021 and where we might be going, I think there will continue to be institutional reckoning uh, with some of these things uh, anywhere from, you know, questions about racial and, and gender discrimination, the integration of, of all types of folks into the armed forces all the way through you know the recent uh, the recent reports and the statements by uh, John Kirby, right? That there was there was no malfeasance in the drone strike that killed um, right Afghan civilians at the at the end of that that withdrawal and, and the the discomfort with thinking like, well, maybe you think nothing went wrong, but something clearly went wrong. I mean, because because if if everything went right, but the result was a horrific consequence that nobody said they wanted. Then how? Then maybe maybe then we're asking the wrong questions. Right. How did everything go right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I <clears> think <throat> there will be be some real, I, I hope, reckoning in terms of like moral and ethical terms 
um, on a, on a whole host of things. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the Biden administration has decided, uh, uh, as part of its reorientation of American strategic vision, let's say, even though they, they haven't come out with a formal national defense strategy, but in the interim defense strategy and in statements by the president, there's been a lot of explicit connections between uh, American international strategy, American security policy, and democracy. And not just sort of, not just spreading democracy, although that is, in fact, spreading democracy is less significant in some ways than protecting democracy where it already exists. And the question of how the United States, how American society, and how the military should see its role in democracy. Um, you know, it, it has, have, our, have our ideals about an apolitical professional military taken significant damage in 2021? And how should or can the military uh, reinforce its apolitical and professional image? Because, yeah. you know, one could argue, depending on, you know, I'm going to try to be as generous as I can here, depending on where you stand, right, you can argue that the um, uh, uh, certain forms of extremism are a danger to military professionalism. But you can also argue that there are some people who argue that talking too much about extremism suggests a kind of politicization of the military in an attempt to limit uh, political discussion within the military. How should we think about what does a healthy relationship between a professional, apolitical military and a democratic society look like? What is What should yeah. that look like? Again, these are, these are right, like there's so many other civil scholars who should who should be answering that question and not me. So again, I hope people will people will write and podcast about these things. But it which seems, I will admit is my ulterior motive here is everybody yes, who's listening. I, know, to I, this, I, I like right. this, um, which is we need right we need smart people thinking about these big questions. So again, I'm going to ask I'm going to ask questions and not not propose many answers, which is to say the the consensus and I'm always a little wary of, of consensus positions that form quite quickly. The consensus seems to be emerging that 2021 was a pretty terrible year for civil military relations in the United States. Um, starting early in January uh, and then, you know, moving, moving right on throughout the year. Um, one of the, one of the critiques again from, from political science has been that the U S focus on civil military relations about coup proofing Mm -hmm. the United States. And that, that, that has maybe never really been the question or never seemed to be a a significant danger in the United States has led us to ask not the right questions Mm -hmm. about what healthy civil military relations look like. When we talk about senior leaders, senior military leaders and their role in the American political system, in the, you know, political arena, one thing that I think we talk about a lot at the War College uh, is this difference between being apolitical and nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. I think those are distinctions that deserve some some more investigation. Um, I think it's been popular to say that the military should be nonpartisan, but recognizing that the military operates in political space. And I think that is largely true. And yet, as that political space becomes increasingly partisan and, and maybe even hyper-partisan, uh, you know, what does, what does that mean? Is it even possible? I think this is your question. Mm-hmm. Is it even possible to be nonpartisan when almost every issue has a partisan polarized right. uh, poll? Well, and- right. It might seem that 
countering extremism in the ranks is a is a nonpartisan issue. Mm-hmm. It's a political issue, but a nonpartisan one. And it turns out that maybe there is a, a partisan divide even there. Right. And and this is what I'm what I'm wrestling with too, especially in it with an all-volunteer force that is drawn from a small and declining segment of the overall American society. When we talk about, when we talk about use a, a, a loaded term like identity politics is membership in the military and identity that is going to have a certain politics connected to it. And mm-hmm. how should, you know, how should people, you know, you and I are both civilians who work for a military or have worked for a military institution. <laughs> so we, we obviously believe that it's possible for there to be useful dialogue here. But how should um, civilians look at the military? How should military the military look at the civilian world when the distinctions between those two worlds appear to be deepening rather than deepening? Uh, you know, the, you know. Yeah. So right, if the if if one level of civil military conversations that need to happen are at the elite, like right senior level, uh, the political like the the formal structural relationship between civilian masters and, and, and military officers. Um, there's a whole second set of questions, right. About which we refer to colloquially as the gap, right. The, the civil military gap, is there a gap between U S military and American society? If, and if there is, is it a problem? If there is, what's the cause of it? And if there is, and it's a problem, how do we, how do we start fixing it? So that's actually right three or four questions that have to be, that have to be answered. And I think depending on how you answer the first question, is there a gap, you know, shapes, shapes how you think about the second ones. Um, We might think about, right. Regional and socioeconomic status and familial status. Like there's all sorts of interesting ways to, to break the problem down. We can think about political affiliation we can think about, um, you know, how familiar are people with military life and military service. Mm-hmm. And if there is a gap, and if there, if that gap is a problem, because there's also pretty strong arguments to be made that you want your military to have a somewhat distinct culture in order to do the things that, that we ask military services to do. For sure. Uh, which are largely outside, um, right? We talk about sanctioned killing and the use of violence in a in a separate in a separate space right those are things that would not be sanctioned in like the normal course of everyday life and we there there needs to be some distinction and some separation so if there is a gap and if there is a, a problem with the gap then then we start to think about whose responsibility is it to close the gap Mm -hmm. Right. And, and which side needs to move or which side needs to do the understanding. Uh, and again, I think there's all sorts of, of really interesting conversations to be had mm-hmm. in that, in that regard. And I guess that's the thing is, is I, ideally, right. You both sides need to reach out to each other, right? So the, it, it's not one side lecturing the other saying, you have to understand me. It's, we have to understand each other. We have, we have to understand yeah. each other. And I think in that, in that understanding also being really careful about assigning um, moral, like the moral high ground to one right. side or the other. Well, um, yeah, and that's and that gets me to the last thing uh, for this brief conversation, which we hope is will will inspire lots of 
uh, comments and article and podcast pitches from our audience um, is there's always been a hope expressed, unexpressed, quietly held that a an external threat of significant magnitude will help Americans to discover how much they have in common with each other. And that somehow that, that that's what we, you know, either that's what we need, or we can always count on the fact that if there's enough of a crisis, we will, um, we'll be able to pull together. Now, over the last couple of years, right, the United States has faced a threat that has killed about 800,000 Americans. And we're still sitting here talking about how divided American society is. Um, can we learn anything, good or bad? from the response to COVID-19 um, when thinking about what future crises might do to a divided American society? It's a question, Dr. end with that one. I apologize, Dr. Witt, but you're, um, you're a smart person no, I wanted to ask. I, I wonder, again, in the spirit of asking, asking questions, um, I wonder what the partisan poll has done, the, the polarization, which it, it I, I have a really distinct memory of talking about partisan polarization in like 2012 and thinking it was really bad. And now I think like, oh, that's the good old, that's like, <laughs> the good old kind days. kind of quaint, I know. I kind of. It's cute that we thought that 2012, um, you know, had a lot to, had a lot to teach us about partisan polarization and partisan politics. So I think, I think we have to, we have to look at that really carefully. I think um, I, part of me wonders if, if the difficulty in this coalescing around a common, a common cause or a common problem with, with COVID-19 and pandemics, I think climate change falls into this category as mm -hmm. well, perhaps um, the proverbial right frog in the boiling pot of of water that it is, it is so hard to see the big picture. It is so hard to, um, to understand the magnitude of what we're talking about with, with these, with these kind of threats. And I think in some ways, disinformation and misinformation fall into the same category. We're, we're just, our, our feeble human minds are just not, really capable of, of grasping the magnitude and the, the level of effort that would be required uh, really to, to fix it. None of these are localized problems. These are global problems. These in, in the midst of all of those, you also have acute crises that are demanding attention, right? You have ongoing, a series of crises in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine, in, um, in Central Asia, in in Kazakhstan, like you've got all of these blips that keep that keep happening that are demanding attention, and so you have you have a a problem of magnitude. You have a problem of the the urgent and the important. You have um, you know this this real sense of of what do you what do you do about it? Um, so if there were a surprise attack on the U.S. or one of its allies, do I think the U.S. would probably rally? We, we, we saw that, you know, after 9-11, certainly not um, with with major consequences and, and imperfect and different groups of people experience that in, in different ways. 
Um, but that was an acute shock, mm-hmm. right? In a way that COVID-19 has, has not been acute. It's been, and it probably will be chronic. Climate change uh, doesn't feel acute, even though the specific disasters, you know, weather related and otherwise feel quite acute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's a, I think that's a real challenge that I want national security leaders in the military and outside really thinking about um, how do we, how do we tackle mm-hmm. uh, these, these long-term chronic global uh, global questions. Right. And so I guess, you know, to, to come up with a, uh, a relatively positive thought to wrap this conversation up on, right, that we will not run out of opportunities to rise above our shortcomings. We will not, we, we, we will, in, in, in the year to come and in years to come, we will have plenty of opportunities to show our ability to deal with crises. I think there is lots of, um, to put it cynically, lots of job security in, in the national security space right now. Again, military, diplomatic, informational, economic, mm-hmm. otherwise, um, there's a whole lot of, of thinking and problem solving that, uh, and, and working together that, that needs to be done. And I think we can publications like war room, other, other places, which are, you know, producing really good, thoughtful work can and should be part of that conversation. And so as a, as an editor, that's my, that's my hope for 2022 is that we see, uh, you know, provocative, creative, um, thinking about these these really difficult problems uh, that are based in hard security questions, in sort of human security and soft security, um, in the culture uh, and leadership of our military organizations. Uh, no shortage of opportunity for good creative thinking. And we hope that uh, we will be able to see that good and creative thinking from our contributors to War Room and hopefully in future podcast conversations. Dr. Jacqueline Witt, thank you for joining us for at least a one of those conversations today here on A Better Peace. We look forward to welcoming you back in the future, and we look forward to hearing uh, about your future work. Thanks for being here, Jackie. Anytime. (laughs) And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Please send us your comments about this program and all of our programs. Please, if you have not already, and you should have already, subscribe to A Better Peace. And once you have subscribed to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast because that's how other people can find us too, so that we can continue to grow the community for conversations like this one. I look forward to welcoming you to future conversations. And until next time, From the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.